Actually, I have to do it while you're here, Chris, because... Uh, That's um, fine. I don't have to watch you do it. <laughs> but I want you to watch me do it. <laughs> it's exciting. That's, that's... I'll, I'll leave you two to it. Did you have a good flight over here, Chris? Over there? It was nice. Oslo was very snowy. That was pretty exciting. Oh. It was really exciting. Well, I thought it was exciting because it was really snowy. I've never landed in a plane in the snow. Oh, really? Yeah. It was weird, and then, like, the airplanes were all just, like, the airport was just operating, like, normal, like, like, this is just a normal day at the airport, which obviously it was. Right. <laughs> it was just weird, like, in the UK, everything would have shut down. Right. They would just right. have been like, nope, no, no one can fly into the UK now, there's too much snow, <laughs> there's a bit of ice, but they just kept going. Oh, it was good. It's very good. And then they took off as well. They took off, and before, but before they did that, they put us in a big... Or we like drove over to like a special spraying station, and these two trucks with like giant arms sprayed antifreeze all over all of the airplanes. Oh right, not over you. I thought. <laughs> no, <laughs> <Imagined> you. <laughs> no, this is, like I thought this you'd is... come off the plane and been shuffled into a bus over to a spraying station. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no, no foot and mouth here. No, it was an airplane <laughs> to make sure the airplane was warm enough to take off i guess oh wow it's pretty cool you've probably you've probably seen it before danny that at these airports in this kind countries like this they have this squadron of trucks uh all of various designs and clearly made for different kinds of functions mm. and they kind of they they sweep the runway and all of the the technical term as my as my son explained it to me is apron that's the name of everywhere in the airport that is not a runway that planes go on. It's called the apron. Everywhere that is not a runway that planes go on. So just yes. random bits of grass that planes don't go on is not part just of the called apron. grass. That's just the grass. It's just grass. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So the uh, they'll have like these squadron of trucks that sort of sweep the the runway and all the apron area. They kind of go around in this interesting looking diagonal formation to make sure that they catch like the the first. The first truck will push snow and ice, mm. but anything that gets caught on the inside will be- get caught by the second one. Oh, I see. And it sort of goes down the line like that so that the only place that ice is actually going is completely off the edges of the area where the, the plane is going to move around. All right. It's pretty impressive, really. Yeah, I suppose it'd be pretty bad to have black ice on the road when you're a plane. Is this term black ice? Is this something that uh, everybody in the world was aware of except for this particular Australian before he came to Scandinavia. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of Australians are not aware of black ice or of many varieties of ice. No. <laughs> Is it a common thing in the UK that you, you describe that kind of uh, very, very slippery patch of ice that you can't really see as black ice? Is that a common thing? Yeah, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's what it's called. Because it's, uh, it's black. And it's ice. And it's ice. Yeah, yeah. we don't have much of that uh, in... Australia, as you would imagine. Actually, on that note, last week, I think it was, my father sent me a um, picture of the thermometer in his car Mm. showing that the temperature was 47. 47, bloody hell. Yeah, 47 in Adelaide. So for our American listeners, that is 116.6 freedom units. Wow. It was actually the hottest day on record ever. And I think the the previous hottest day was in like 19... 36 when it was like 46.2 or something mm. uh but yeah 47 is the hottest it's ever been that is extremely hot just imagine that i mean uh yeah i asked my dad what what is it like being in 47 and there's a very you know quintessentially australian response you know oh it's a bit hot i guess yeah <laughs> it's a little bit hot you can actually cook things on the ground 
when it's that hot. Oh, yeah, just stick an egg on the pavement. Exactly, and social media was... Uh, Road egg. Alive. Classic Australian recipe. <laughs> it was alive with these pictures of, of people cooking off the asphalt. Throw, throw a sausage on the road. <laughs> That's right, a, sh- a, sh- a shrimpy on the roadie. Not that we, not that we call them shrimps, but... <laughs> anyway, I guess we shouldn't go too far into this episode before introducing our special guest. So, previously I've made mention of... Uh, usually he went nameless. He was my friend and colleague in Scotland, in Edinburgh. Uh, and tonight he joins us. Uh, this is Chris. Hello. Hello, Chris. Chris is uh, uh, actually visiting me here in uh, in Stockholm. Believe it or not, we do actually work together every day. And uh, Chris has come here for uh, some me- uh, meetings here in Sweden. So uh, he just arrived a few hours ago and we uh, took the pleasant train ride home through the grey blackness to uh, surrounded by snow and a little bit of fog and probably about minus one today which is quite good compared to this morning when it was minus 14. I have to say that it's it's quite surreal uh, just going back to that uh, topic of the hottest day ever in Adelaide it's quite surreal having your father send you a picture of a 47 degree hot car and you, you're looking that when it's like minus 12 outside. Mm. That is a huge difference. But anyway, I digress. Here is Chris. Hello. <laughs> Not really got much to add apart from I'm in Sweden and I got the train with Alex. And he's already told you about that. <laughs> there you go. Actually, um, on the way back from the airport tonight, Chris had a, a fantastic observation, uh-huh. uh, which, which is so true that I'd actually... Uh, not thought that deeply about, but um, Chris pointed out that w- there's something about Scandinavia and hot dogs. They're everywhere. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> like a thing. Yeah, and the two Scandinavian countries I've been to, that's what I've noticed. And I've only been in this one for like six hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's, but it's very true. It's really strange. Like in Australia, a hot dog is a pretty common thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a... You, you hamburgers and hot dogs and chips and stuff like that and uh um it's like junk food really but you know it's it's a standard that we also actually have an extension of the hot dog which is called the sanger <laughs> that's an excellent name you know what a sanger? I, I, don't, I don't want to know i just want to <laughs> you just want to I just want to believe <laughs> a, a sanger do you know what a sanger is danny i don't it sounds like sandwich related but I don't do, know. do you know what a banger is i know what a banger is What's that? It's a sausage. Right. So a sanger, a sanger is a sandwich banger. Ah, I see the etymology <laughs> like, at work. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> it's basically like the, the sort of low-budget uh, blue-collar version of the hot dog, which is where you, you just like... Have the low-budget blue-collar version of a hot dog. Right. You have this uh, kind of slab of bread and, and you just slap down a banger on top of it and squirt some tomato sauce there and, and fold up the corners of the bread and that's a sanger. Brilliant. Very good. Oh, I didn't know that had a name. Oh, well, I've, I've eaten plenty of those, and now, now I know what to call it. <laughs> a sanger, yeah. Anyway, so a hot dog is a fairly common thing in Australia. So when I came here to Sweden, I didn't really sort of think too much about it. But come to think of it, Chris is absolutely right that when you, when you go past like a deli or like a little kiosk kind of shop, there'll always be like these placards out the front with pictures of hot dogs on them. Mm. And... Like it's it's such a common uh, sort of snack thing, the hot dog, that they they are actually everywhere. And a, f- a fine example, 
is that uh, we live uh, in front of a lake mm. and in the middle of winter, like right now, the lake is frozen over. And so on the weekends, you have, uh, you know, the locals out on, on the lake doing things like ice skating and skiing mm. when there's snow um, and, you know, playing with uh, kids out there and stuff like that. And there is consistently a hot dog stand in the middle of the lake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of that all seems the dangerous. Places, like, don't they get hot at the bottom? And they melt the ice. I guess you imagine, <laughs> yeah. But you know, there's this there's a hot dog stand. You can go and buy a hot dog in the middle of the lake. But the thing is that your your hands are frozen cold, and your you know the the, the bottom half of your face is mm. also like so cold that you can barely sort of move your mouth properly. It's what a perfect opportunity to put a sausage and some bread in your mouth. <laughs> 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 I mean, yeah. Anyway. Chris is correct that, that there is something... You know, it's actually funny, now that you mention hot dogs in Scandinavia, now that I'm living in America, which you think of as, you know, land of the hot dogs. Right. I mean, I guess New York is more hot dog-ish than, than California. But that's, where it, that's where it came from originally, the hot dog. Right, right. But, uh, you know, probably the place that I see hot dogs most frequently here is Ikea. <laughs> So they've always got hot dogs at Ikea, but I don't see them all that much outside of Ikea. So there you go. Now, there's, there is another um, very unusual uh, cuisine that the Swedish are somewhat obsessed with, and that is uh, Mexican tacos. Oh, we have those here too. Yeah, I, I guess you probably <laughs> do. <laughs> Mexican tacos, I think it's Thursday nights. Mm. And I was saying to Chris on the way home that this this kind of reeks of some kind of supermarket conspiracy ploy to get people to buy more taco shells but apparently thursday is taco thursday thursday not tuesday maybe it's tuesday taco tuesday obviously alliterates better and i think that's what it is here maybe oh you might be right because thursday seems dumb unless that you know it's it's taco thursday that's like well <laughs> dnd players meet on thursdays <laughs> you might be right i may have got them mixed up because thursday and tuesday are very uh, they sound very similar in swedish at least to me but... uh, do they well if they sound similar maybe in swedish the thursday works better i don't know but here i think it's taco tuesday i think is a thing okay yeah no you might you might be right but again like tacos i, I mean i like mexican food mm -hmm. but yeah, mm, I, I don't know that it needs to become this sort of cultural institution in Scandinavia for having tacos on a Tuesday, but I, uh, I think that's fine. I, I think, think it's fine. I, <laughs> I would have tacos every Tuesday if that was an option. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> but it's it's just. I don't think you'll win many friends over here suggesting that Taco Tuesday isn't a good. No, idea. I'm not. Well, yes, no, it's not, I'm not suggesting that it's not a good idea, but it just seems like such an unusual. Alex, why do you hate tacos? Um, uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. I do have. There is a conversation there, yes, and you know because I've I've uh, spoken to you about it before, I believe, on the on the train. But anyway, hot dogs you can kind of understand because there's one thing that I've discovered that Sweden does extremely well mm. is bread. Like <laughs> the the quality of the bread here is just on a different level. Oh, really? I mean, it's you know it's Northern Europe, and so all of the things that you would expect Northern Europe to do well, like sausages, mm. bread, cheese butter sort of dairy foods are excellent but the, the quality of the bread here is just i mean there's there's so many varieties of bread and every one of them is just a smash hit i mean it's really just amazing so then of course you know sausages northern europe of course mm -hmm. so put them together with some uh, you know some butter and right. 
Got right. yourself a delicious singer. Yeah, Swedish yeah. singer. That's what you want. A Swedish singer. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> a Scandinavian singer, a skanger. <laughs> that, that that sort of sounds like it means something else, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <That's> a bit. <laughs> anyway, let's let's talk about Mexican food. So here is the deal with Mexican food. I like Mexican food. Okay. And I think it's very tasty. I mean, you know, how can you go wrong with garlic and oil and, and I don't know, what else do they have in Mexican food? Beans and <laughs> salt. So it's a garlic, oil and salt. <laughs> three main components of a Mexican meal. Yep. How many Mexican <laughs> listeners are turning off around this? That's, that's right. But this is this unusual thing that I've discovered with, with um, my friends from America and Mexican food, mm. and that is that most of my friends from America will make a specific point in telling me about how great Mexican food is. Yeah, they, they like their Mexican food. It almost makes it seem like there is no other delicious food in the United States except for Mexican food. Is this actually the case? Hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hot dogs. I mean, he, Burgers. he has a point there. Yeah. Mexican food and hot dogs. <laughs> So how's your how's your uh, gastronomic experience been there in the years that you've lived in the United States, Danny? I think the area that we live is actually known for being like really good mm. and having you know there's lots of people from all sorts of different backgrounds who live here and lots of immigrants from all sorts of different countries. So there's a you know there's a lot of different styles of food and flavors available. I think it's got a bit of a reputation, but coming from Japan we've tended to find it a little bit disappointing. Oh, really? Also, I think possibly the things that my wife likes are harder to find. Mm. And the things that she doesn't like are what's good here. Oh, I see. Like, she's she's not that into pizza, for example. Mm. She, you know, she likes a pizza every now and then, but she's not, like, super into it. She wouldn't want to have it too often. And there's some really good pizza places around here. Mm. And... Same for burgers, I suppose. Just a lot of good burger places. So I don't know. I don't, we've tended to find that it's not that great. And also, it's very expensive. Mm. In Japan, you can get really good food for between 10 and $20. Mm. And then if you splash out and spend like $100, you get like a super great experience, amazing meal, kind of fancy Mm. Yeah, sit down restaurant type place. Here, the cheaper end, sort of reasonably good food tends to be about twenty dollars mm. plus tip. All oh, right, and tip is twenty percent, so mm. that's you know twenty five dollars by the time you factored that in. So it's it's kind of over double the price. Right, and then if you want the sort of fancy sort of nice full course uh, meal then there's nothing much in the sort of well there's there's not that many places in the sort of hundred dollar bracket so you you start going up into the sort of crazy high like three four five hundred dollars each which is an outrageous amount to spend on food Mm. so that in between of like better than just casually going out for a quick bite somewhere but not going to a sort of Michelin three-star super amazing place doesn't seem to be that easy to find. 
I think it's a little bit better up in San Francisco. Like we've been to a couple of places in San Francisco. We went to a really good place in Oakland the other day called Commis. But I don't know. Mm. Like we used to go out for fancy meals quite a bit in Japan. And we can't really afford to do it as much here. I will offer one criticism of restaurant food in Japan. Mm. By and large, what you say is true, that it's affordable and it's, it's generally quite healthy and obviously, you know, prepared with uh, an excellent amount of care, as you would imagine, for, you know, a Japanese establishment. Mm. But the one thing that I always found quite disappointing about eating out in Japan is the lack of vegetables. Uh. Like sort of roughage style vegetables you know, like thing you know basically you would get uh, like cabbage and japanese seem to enjoy their cabbage quite a lot but there's a raw cabbage yeah sort of shredded raw cabbage and and that's i don't know i i tend to find that a little bit bland i know i know what you mean like there's definitely that was part of the reason that that my wife liked to sort of balance eating out occasionally with mostly eating at home, like partly yeah. financial reasons, partly because she likes cooking and preparing her own food, but also partly because the food that that we and I think most Japanese people make at home yeah. is much more balanced than what you'll get in a restaurant. Yeah, only really in Japan, it's, it's always, I think there's that gap as with your wife and my wife too, that you go out to eat at a restaurant because you want to eat something that generally you won't make yourself at home. Right, right. Sure. You know, for like, for example, obviously sushi and sashimi and things like that, but things like ramen and, uh, you know, various kinds of noodles and katsudon, tonkatsu, you know, right. kushikatsu, those kinds of things are, uh, you know, very um, labor intensive to make at home. So mm-hmm. you eat them in a restaurant. And that's generally why the restaurant version will not have vegetables beyond like spring onion or cold sliced cabbage. <laughs> Uh, not not a fan clearly (laughs) i'm not and it's interesting because i remember when i'm eating with my japanese friends they would Mm. often comment on the quality of the cabbage Mm. and it's like ah gotta appreciate these things the 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 adjective that they would always use is shaki shaki Mm. meaning that it's it's like crunchy uh great it's crunchy um (laughs) it's because it's a raw cabbage (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely what you want raw cabbage to yeah. be. Yeah. Anyway, well, maybe this is the reason why uh, uh, Mexican food is so popular in the USA is because you know there's a lot of roughage there. Mm. <laughs> so that's, what, that's probably it, Alex. Yeah. yeah, it's probably the vegetables. I think most most Americans going to Mexican <laughs> restaurant are, are there for their veggies. That's right. Keep yeah. some regular. So moving along from uh, gastronomy, Danny, I have a I have an amazing recommendation for you today. Mm. My my children are somewhat obsessed with a, uh, a TV program which is going around at the moment, which is quite popular, which is the new series of the Thunderbirds. Oh, it's a new series. I've heard people talk about Thunderbirds, but yeah, I thought they were just watching the old puppet thing from the 80s or whatever, 70s. When is it? Thunderbirds? <laughs> it's uh, 1960s, I believe. 60s? Bloody hell. I think so. This, it was called um, Super, Super Marionation was the name of the... Uh, like they, they they gave a name to the cutting edge technology, the, the process, <laughs> basically. So you never were, you never were a fan of the original. Uh, I was, I was, not, I was not that into it. I mean, I think it's cool now if I look back at it. But maybe also not helped by the fact that 
I never saw it until we moved to England. Oh, of course. When I was eight. I suppose eight is about the age that you do right. watch it. But Right, yeah. So actually, the TV series ran for 90... It was the mid-60s. Produced between 1964 and 1966. Wow. Mm. What was the submarine one they did afterwards? Stingray. Yes. Stingray. Yeah. Stingray, Stingray. Yeah, that was, that was more... I think that was more of a thing when I was in England. Yeah, so basically, um, uh, for those who don't know, Thunderbirds was a series uh, of... This is kind of like a, a science fiction action series about an association called International Rescue. And the what made it unique was that it was all done with puppets, electronically controlled marionette puppetry, that is, puppets controlled by strings. And the whole thing was that there were these five vehicles, Thunderbird 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and there is this family of brothers with uh, their father who um, basically their job is to uh, come to the rescue of uh, extreme emergencies and rescuing people from dangerous situations. Mm. So this was the series in the, in the mid-60s, and uh, for the past two, three years, there's been a new series that's been going on uh, the English title is Thunderbirds Are Go, mm. which is, uh, of course, the famous phrase from when these Thunderbird, Thunderbird vehicles launch. In Sweden, it's just called Thunderbirds, and it's actually also only just called Thunderbirds in Japan as well. And this, oh, it's absolutely fantastic. Is it still with the puppets? Yeah, so firstly, the way that it's done is really interesting, oh. and I didn't actually... I'd always thought that it looked amazing, but I didn't really sort of know why it looked amazing. Mm. So the characters... And the vehicles in the new series are computer graphics. Okay. But they are, the characters are sculpted in a way that they kind of look a little bit similar to those early puppets. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's quite clever the, the way they've done it. Like even the walking and the way that they frame the photography of the shots is quite similar to the original series. Because mm. uh, obviously in the original they need to frame the shots specifically because um, there are strings that are controlling the puppets. And so often you don't see the legs for that reason. Uh, And when you do see the legs, it's often you don't see the top half of the body because that's just part of the the craft of the production. So with this new series, they've maintained that even though there's no necessity to do it that way. So the characters and the vehicles are computer graphics. However, the backgrounds are all actually physical models. All right. And they're made by the uh, the Weta Workshop, oh. who of course are uh, in New Zealand and, and very famous for their uh, modelling work on the Lord of the Rings movie series. Indeed, and it's just incredible. Like the 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 back the backgrounds, if you really look at them carefully, being that they are physical physical models, mm. the the sort of the textures of the the materials and the surfaces and. I mean, just obviously, it looks so real, obviously. <laughs> but on on top of that, you've got these sort of computer, you've these um, CGI characters. Mm. And the vehicles, they also do in CGI because obviously the vehicles have moving mechanisms, which I think, I believe they have some of the vehicles are models, but mostly it's, it's computer graphics. So it, it looks incredible. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is the music is just crazy. It's, oh, really? it's just bonkers crazy i mean the the original theme of the thunderbirds is is quite famous mm-hmm. but they've two composers in uh london i believe mm-hmm. and it's basically pretty clear that the producers have just said okay you know just make it thunderbirds and just do do what you like mm. so it's just like completely over the top 
it's ultra dramatic and it's all sort of properly recorded by an orchestra and it just sounds magnificent i mean it's just totally exaggerated melodramatic bonkers epic crazy awesome music <laughs> is it similar in style yeah so it's original. similar in it's so it's a lot of brass and a lot of right. sort of military band style uh uh, and the music, you know, it, yeah, it's just amazing. The voice acting is also amazing. However, um, my children watch it in Swedish. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure. Uh, I'm sure Chris is going to be subjected to it while he's here staying with us. I'm not totally sure whether part of the reason that I think the new Thunderbirds is so great mm. is because I watch it in Swedish. Mm. And then there is that charm that is a foreign language and I don't fully understand it. Mm. And you know, the, the nuance of listening to the way these people are talking in Swedish is already entertaining in itself. Right. Because, you know, to me, it's very foreign. Right. So I'm not sure if that is the reason why I think this new series is incredible more than it actually is, but it's just fantastic. So the storylines are really good. The episodes are based around some kind of, you know, massive mishap mm. that requires the uh, services of the international rescue team and uh, the... It's just so perfectly targeted to its target audience. Mm. Its target audience is like perfectly nine-year-old boy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got these cool vehicles, and you know they, they they don't just sort of step into the vehicle. They go down these long shoots. They have like these contraptions that so they, they basically don't have to walk to their vehicle. Mm. They sort of stand in this sort of elevator chute, and then the, these robot arms come out to get them dressed into their, you know, their their work action clothes and. Uh, then all sort of drop them down into the vehicle and they close the hatch and there's a big number on the side like Thunderbird 2 and then there'll be this launch sequence and there's like rockets and smoke and trombones and <laughs> trumpets. And <laughs> it's it's just so incredible. I mean, I just, you, you have to see it. It's really amazing. Is it on TV or is it on Netflix and stuff like that? What is the distribution? It is a TV series and mm. here in Sweden it is uh, broadcasted f- via the um, uh, Barnkanalen, which is the Swedish national uh, children's television uh-huh. channel. Okay. Uh, which has an app, which you could watch the uh, Swedish version if you wanted. But I believe probably, I, I don't know about the distribution in, in the United States, but it is very popular right now, and it is broadcast around the world. I'll have to have a look. Speaking of the um, handcrafted sort of backgrounds, but with animation going on in, in the foreground, did you play Lumino City? No. On the, it's on iPad and probably iPhone as well and on Apple TV no. as well. No, I've got it on my wish list. I remember when it came out, I thought, oh man, that looks amazing. I want to play that. Yeah, it, it does look amazing. They had a behind-the-scenes video as well of basically they made the whole level of it. Well, they made the whole game out of paper, essentially. They constructed this whole sort of level. The game goes from screen to screen, but it's a, kind of a continuous location so it's not like lots of discrete levels so much as one large location that you're seeing different angles into and they constructed all that out of paper and then i think they actually made the the player character well all the characters out of paper as well but the characters are like 2d uh, cutouts which then get animated separately and the actual background to the level i think is all just camera shots of this real 3d constructed model of, of the level of the game yeah and it's great it's a fun little game it's not too long uh, but it's a it's kind of a, 
a sort of puzzly, uh, not quite point and click, but that sort of ilk of puzzle game. Um, it's a fun little thing. It's just really nice and joyous. It'll be up your street, Chris. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll add it back onto my wish list. What was the name of the game again? Lumino City. It's worth... I'll, I'll see if I can give you a link or something to look at pictures of it, because it's, okay. it's pretty. Yeah, actually, um, there is another game. Um, I'd be interested to know what year that game was. There's a game that came out in 2014 called Tengami, mm. which was out for iPad and Wii U, uh, PC, Mac iOS etc and that also is a uh, it's a game that looks I don't think that it's actually created out of physical things but it's it looks like a pop-up book right so every screen unfolds like a pop-up book and it's the, the idea is that it's, it looks like it's made of paper but this one that you're talking about actually is paper it actually is yeah like literally and I've just sent you the DuckDuckGo search but you can see some of the pictures in there you can actually see so it's a real physically made model, and then they've lit it up all nicely, and they take photos of it from different angles. Oh, I and, see. Mm. And that's what the wow! Look at that. Kind of amazing. I think it was a UK uh, studio that made it, mm. and it's got moving parts and things. And I presume, I think they actually physically moved as well. I think they're mechanical, so mm. like it's got yeah, this boat so. that rocks. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I always like to see examples of areas of technology that are generally generally pride themselves on being extremely advanced and cutting edge, uh, taking a, a sort of a retrospective backwards look towards traditional techniques. Mm. Um, like this Thunderbird series is a good example of that because if somebody didn't tell you that the backgrounds are actually old models, mm. you probably wouldn't notice. You would just think that it looks really, really good, but you don't really know why. Right. Uh, and then to find out that actually the reason, or one reason, it looks so great is because everything is actually real except for the characters on top. And I think that balance of the, you know, cutting edge graphics technology together with traditional model making. Mm. I, I always like it when you have the sort of the, the combination of the old and the new like that. Mm. Uh, and obviously I'm mean, a fine example of obviously is, is um, uh, the original star Wars movies as well, because those ones, you know, the, the, just the sort of gritty realism of those actual models. Right. You, you could almost say you just can't beat that, really. I mean, you know, if you compare episode one and episode two, I guess, but I think in the later Star Wars movies, I believe that they started to incorporate m models again, but I believe that episode one, the first of the new movies, was entirely computer-generated. So this game that you uh, mentioned also seems to be in this similar genre of uh, a nice combination of the old and the new yeah you know we did that as well by we i mean not me but the back room were you there they did we did that they did at one point yeah we didn't do anything with it did we yeah it was a, a the vacuum game yeah <laughs> it was lovingly called that might have been before my time i think i think it was it was either before your time or before you were coming to the office mm. yeah it was it was a fun project like we had all these little cut-out physical parts, which Chris's wife made, mm -hmm. and sewed and actually physically constructed. And then we sort of tried to scan those in or photograph them or something and, and make a game out of them, which was all about vacuuming, right? Mm. Yeah, it was about being like a robot vacuuming. I can't remember the specifics, probably just sucking stuff up. Yeah, yeah. we should probably point out at this point, at this juncture, that uh, Danny and Chris used to work together. And and I did too. And we all worked together in the same company, and that is how we 
know each other. It, well, yes. In fact, Chris and I used to work together in another same company in the UK, and that is how we know each other. It is. We've known each other for, for like 12 or 13 years now. Something like that. Quite a long time. It was a long time. Also, Chris was the one who introduced me to AJAT. Did you know that? All Japanese all the time. That whole Japanese thing that I've talked about in the past where I didn't do any English stuff for a while. Uh, that was that was Chris's fault. You're welcome. <laughs> Except you did. You did it a lot better than I did because cause you actually did all Japanese all the time and I did it some Japanese some of the time. Right. <laughs> it didn't work out so well, so I guess that... <laughs> kind of proves the system works it, <laughs> it worked up pretty well for you i think it's a it's one of those things you've got to find a balance like the extreme of all japanese all the time can only work for some people for some periods of their lives i think and i happen to be i think so living alone and without much better to do <laughs> for yeah. exactly that period that you introduced me to it so it was very easy for me to take it on <laughs> yeah i um so i've been trying to keep up with duolingo for learning swedish oh yeah but i'm not sure i think i talked about it before but it's going very slowly yeah that's kind of how i after i tried duolingo for a little while i think duolingo is a good tool if you want to kind of casually have learning some language as your long-term low priority background project because mm. it's very low entropy it's kind of <laughs> low effort i don't mean that in a bad way but it doesn't ask too much of you right you can you can do as much as you like right and it's very gentle in the way that it sort of grades things up um it doesn't want to make you feel bad about yourself which is good mm. but it also doesn't confront you with your own weaknesses so much as as Anki, yeah. which is fairly merciless at times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've started to look around for uh, a band mm. again. Again. Yeah, so previously I was involved in uh, the uh, that um, 200 voice choir backing band that mm. I was playing for, uh, but that is not a regular thing. That was a one-off performance that it was at the end of last year. Right. And um, it's. I think there's another performance planned for this year, so hopefully there'll be an opportunity to play with that again. But mm -hmm. I need something a bit more regular. Uh, so I've been looking around, um, and it seems that uh, the main way that people are um, uh, advertising, searching for, or you know, wanted bassist mm. <laughs> kind of advertisements in Sweden is Facebook. Right. And so um, uh, Facebook, I've been sort of basically, aside from Messenger, I've been slowly, uh, systematically phasing out of my everyday uh, social media practice. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, for finding a band, uh, I think it's probably the only, because that's really the, the, the main way that I learned to speak when I was in Japan is by playing in bands. Right. Because in that context, uh, we talked about this before, but in that context, you're not there specifically to talk language. Right, right. You're there to do something else and language is just facilitating that yeah and so i think that uh it's a bit harder here in sweden because everybody speaks such good english mm. uh, and when they see that you're struggling with their language they'll just switch to your language perfectly right, right. <laughs> and it's just so much quicker and easier to just get things done in english uh, and they would do the same with you know a french person or a german person or uh, you know somebody from asia or whoever it doesn't matter if if you don't speak Swedish, then you'll speak English, and that's the way. Uh, it's like very very easy, and that's the reason why it's so hard to learn. But right. 
I always considered pretending not to speak English when I was in Japan and people would talk to me in English sometimes,、mm. which was not too much of a problem. Like a lot of foreigners in Japan seem to complain about that a lot, but I don't know. I found that it, it, it didn't happen so often that I never got any Japanese practice. And when it did happen, I was happy enough to just talk English. Because unlike Sweden, you know, the general level of English is not as high as it is in Sweden.、Mm. So I didn't find it to be too much of a problem. But occasionally I considered. Uh, or just to make a point almost,、uh, just pretending that I only spoke Spanish <laughs>、right. and Japanese and not English. <laughs>、right. But I was always worried I'd bump into the one Japanese person who spoke fluent Spanish, and my Spanish is not that good, so the game would be up pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Then you'd be in trouble. Chris, do you speak any other languages other than English and Japanese? No. I learned French at high school to high school French level, but I, apart from Pomplemousse, I can't really remember very many words. Or sentences or grammar or anything like that.、Mm. Right. Yeah, but that's the answer. I see. How, how um, <laughs> yeah. After the years that you've been away from Japan, how good is your Japanese now? Better than I expected. We went back to Japan in October there after like a year, year and a half away.、Mm. And I was, I was, I've not done any practicing since I've been away. I've not really had much reason.、Um, and there's not, I live in Edinburgh now, and there's not much opportunity to talk or use Japanese at all.、Mm. But when I went back, I could understand. It, f- it felt like I could understand what people were saying at the same level as I could. My Japanese is nowhere near either you or Danny, but it was passable, conversational. My, my wife always says that your pronunciation is much better than mine. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I could pronounce some words pretty good when I was there in October. But yeah, I was, I was surprised it hadn't atrophied as much. I'm sure it had. And when I was speaking, I found it harder to find the right word fast enough. Mm. But usually, after I had said it and someone had pointed out that I'd said the wrong thing or I'd struggled through and just dropped back to English, I'd be like, oh, I should have said this thing. So it's clearly all there somewhere, but it's just slightly, slightly locked away.、Mm. And I guess having been there for four years and living pra- or trying to practice it semi seriously for a few years before that, that, that means it's, it's there and it's not going to go away too quickly. Right. But definitely, definitely the, the more advanced stuff I was learning towards the end of my time has dropped off. Right.、Mm. But I think you've probably, like, we were talking last, last episode as well about how, well, we don't know this for sure, but I feel like there's a sort of certain point that once you get past it, at least some aspect of the things you've learned to that point never sort of quite go away. Yeah. That, that Alex has got to that point with his Chinese and that I feel like perhaps I haven't got to that point with my. Spanish, but I think you've probably got to that point with your Japanese. I think,、right? I think for with my conversational basic Japanese,、mm-hmm. definitely. I don't, I can't imagine not being able to to say, Can I have a beer? For example,、right. <laughs> like that, that's something that's just going to be there forever, right? Right, and and that, that kind of level in, in quick conversations and how are you doing? What's going on? Oh, sorry, I、yeah. bumped into you. Yeah. And there's lots of things like that that right, they're instinctive like, will happen. Like if,、yeah. if I'm talking to a Japanese person or I'm around a Japanese person,、mm. I'll automatically say sumasen instead of excuse me. Right. Like, and I kind of almost can't help it. Right. And I think there's a lot of that locked away there. And I'm sure you and Alex have the same in, in your multiple languages.、Um, yeah, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm great at Japanese. That was the point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you did want a way to, to get. A small amount of practice, not so much speaking practice, but writing. I've been using, I mentioned this before when I was doing Spanish, but I've been using Hello Talk for my Japanese again recently. 
and uh, do you do you know what Halo Talk is, Chris? Have you? Yeah, I, I I know because I listened to Station Thirteen, <laughs> and I remember. I think you've talked about it a couple of times, and both both times, mm. I've thought that sounds amazing. I'm going to sign up for that because right. that would be a nice, not too high effort, but kind of interesting way to keep right. my Japanese up. Right. And then, then like Luminosity, I did nothing right. with that thought. Well, you've got a, a good Luminosity and Halo Talk. To, to download cool. after we finish. Put in the show notes for me. Oh yeah, we'll do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Hello Talk I, is, I, I think it's it's really great. In fact, for Alex as well, I, I definitely recommend it. Of all, I've spent a lot of time over the last year or so experimenting with quite a few different apps between Memorize and Duolingo, and going back to Anki much more seriously and customizing my cards a lot more and, and all of that, and uh, and Hello Talk. But I found Hello Talk to be, I mean, it fills a very different role to Anki, but I've been impressed by how I managed to find it useful at at t- both levels. Like, I found it useful for my Spanish, where my level is much lower, because I could just have random conversations about anything with anyone and not be particularly fussy and just try. And I would get lots of corrections. Like, a lot of people would... It's got a really good interface for corrections, so a lot of people would see my sort of bad Spanish and, and would correct it for me. And then i get a whole pile of of sort of example sentences just delivered to me, which is nice. But then using it now for Japanese, where obviously my level is is much higher than my Spanish, mm-hmm. is good because I get... It's a good way to just meet quite a, a wide variety of people. So I think I've, I've done a couple of times on there now. I don't know how long I can keep doing it before it starts annoying everyone. But uh, because I'm focusing on, on pronunciation, I'm quite interested in differences in pronunciation between different dialects and standard Japanese and, and Kansai-ben and stuff like that, I, I can ask like quite specific questions of like, this particular sentence, do you pronounce it like with this accent or this accent? And everyone likes talking about the way they personally speak, right? So I get yeah. quite a few comments back saying, oh, no, I don't do it quite like that. I do it like this instead. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually from Kyushu, but I pronounce it like this, totally different way and, and stuff like that. It's really interesting. That's cool. Yeah, so I definitely mm. definitely recommend it to anyone who's doing who's at any level in, in language I'll learning. To, I'll have to try because I've been sort of thinking that yeah, uh, it's it's uh, time to take things to the next level because it's it's just going very slowly with Duolingo and mm. I like we had this conversation before many times but anyway right. the the is this feeling that yes I can do the Duolingo exercises very well mm-hmm. but I'm still like that doesn't seem to help me when I'm standing in front of a Swedish person who's talking to me in Swedish. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. what Hello Talk really helps with because you're generally having actual communication with a real person, right? You're not just doing exercises. Like I, I still use Anki, and that's good for like raw memorization, flashcard type stuff. Um, and maybe if you're feeling like you want to sort of graduate from Duolingo and you want something to remember verb tenses and remember vocabulary, then I maybe would say Anki is a good choice. But if you want just like practice to be able to come out with the right phrase or the right sentence construction, just instinctively in conversation, then I think Hello Talk's great because it offers both text and voice chat. So you can start off just talking to people with text where you can take a bit more time to look things up in the dictionary and make sure of yourself. And then as you start to feel comfortable doing that, you can start having voice chats with people and get actual speaking practice. So it's, it's really good. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking uh, looking through the list of available languages in Hello Talk, mm-hmm. and there's no Swedish here. I don't believe you. 
There's there must oh, wait be. a minute. Let me no. Uh, this, is, I, this list is sort of in not really in alphabetical order, but I'm just. Looking you, is it on a website, or have you got the app installed or something? No, I'm just looking on the app store on my phone. Don't look at that. No, no, that's, that's the languages of the interface. That's not the languages oh. that are offered <laughs> to learn in the app. It says languages available to learn in Hello Talk. Oh, okay. Well, and there's lots of them. And <laughs> some some languages here that I've never heard of. Can Canada, Canada. English. <laughs> it's like English, but you say A at the end. <laughs> how about how about Hausa? H A U S A. Haven't heard of that. Hmong, Igbo. All our Igbovian listeners are going to be very upset. Yeah. You, you'd imagine that with languages like that, that there would be Swedish here, but there's not. That I am. I'm certain. I'm trying to launch the app, but unfortunately, the app, for all that I like it, is a little bit uh, slow sometimes. Anyway, I'm certain Swedish must be in there. Latin is in there. Latin is really <laughs> annoying because a lot of Latin Americans sign up to it and then speak Spanish on, like, <laughs> they sign up as native speakers oh, no. of Latin, yeah. um, which is yeah. like, <laughs> very few actual Latin speakers on there. Um, I mean, they're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think Dothraki might be on there as well. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of very uh, esoteric languages in this list. So I'm a little, there's, there's Finnish, and I see Danish. So why isn't there Swedish in this list? I'm sure I'm sure Swedish is available. I mean, the the bottom of this list there's there's a very suspicious dot 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 dot. So maybe Swedish is inside those dots. Yeah, must be. Well, anyway, I, I shall check it out. I've I've always been, I think, from my experience in Japan, where I was learning Japanese in a very practical way. Mm. You know, with other musicians in in bands, having them you know, tell tell me that my bass playing sucks mm. and trying to get through that kind of situation in a foreign language. Mm. I've always been a little bit sort of hesitant about learning tools because I, I always sort of like to learn why well, I liked to learn in the real situation. Mm -hmm. You know, if I need to learn how to talk, right. then I just got to talk. And so being in a situation where I have to talk is the best and fastest way to learn. So, yeah, I've always been... Uh, biased towards sort of more practical learning real world world in situations like that right. which is the reason why i'm looking for a band however the other thing is that with japanese and also chinese before that for me because i had that uh, foundation of basic vocabulary and grammar already right it did sort of speed up the process in that practical situation whereas now beyond what i've learned in duolingo uh you know if you put me down in in a rehearsal studio with four other Swedish musicians, I would be pretty lost right. <laughs> because I just don't have the vocabulary. And obviously Duolingo hasn't gotten on to words like groove <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, the essential words for playing music. Right. So anyway, yeah. I'm curious to hear about, uh, this is a bit of a not so elegant segue into a different topic here, but Danny, I'm curious to hear about, uh, your experiences with noise-canceling headphones, because I see this in our topic list here. <laughs> Actually, this ties in. This this does tie into the language stuff. If if you'd only known, you could have made a perfect segue. Okay, well you can do because that because I. It's not too late. It's not too late. Because <laughs> funnily enough, as well as all this stuff with with Hello Talk and all that, because I'm trying to improve my accent, the other thing I've been doing recently is shadowing. Have you ever? Are you familiar with shadowing? Do you know what that is? Is I think didn't you explain it last time where you repeat a phrase that you hear exactly? Or right. 
Right, exactly. So you, I think when most people do it, they, they play something and they try and speak just after the person right. and they just try and follow along. I found that that was extremely difficult slash impossible. Hmm. So what I've done is taken the, the audio and put it on a, an extremely short loop of like sub-sentence level, sort of a, a single clause, hmm. uh, which generally tends to be about like two seconds worth. And I put that on a loop and then try and say it not just after them, but at exactly the same time I with see. exactly the same pitch and so forth. Yeah. So at first, of course, I'm completely failing to do this and I'm like... Uh, uh, <laughs> but then eventually like i start to sort of learn the whole phrase and be able to start saying the first part of it and the second and then eventually get the whole thing and uh, it's been pretty good but one of the things that was a little bit off-putting was that while i was speaking i could also hear my own voice like you know how you can hear your own voice differently from the way that it actually sounds Right. That's why a lot because of people don't like the sound of their own voice recorded, yeah. right? Because it's you, resonating in your head. Right. So I wanted to try and cut that out as much as possible and just get the the raw external voice from the microphone. So I actually invested in a pair of, of noise cancelling headphones hmm. to cancel out the sound of my voice coming out of my mouth and straight into my ears. And just get the sound that is coming out of my mouth into the microphone and then into the headphones. Wow, that's fascinating. But, but does the reason that your voice sounds different right. in, uh, for yourself than it is for other people is because it's resonating in your head. Right. So does that actually work? Partly. It, it can't completely shut out the sound like 100%. As you say, part of that sound is not caused by you know, air molecules being pushed into your ears, but it's actually caused by vibrations and like the, the bone structure of your head and, and so forth. Mm. Um, but it can reduce it quite substantially. Um, and then if you've got the volume, you know, up a little way in the headphones, you can kind of drown out most of what you're hearing from your voice external to what's coming in through the headphones. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I found it to be actually surprisingly effective. Wow. Fascinating. Amazing. The other thing is that this this microphone that I'm using has a headphone output on it, so it can feed back the input into the headphones without any lag. Because if I plugged the headphones into the computer and relied on that to feed it back to me, there would actually be a little bit of lag, which which is quite off-putting. Hmm. Uh, but this microphone is particularly good for this exercise because it can just feed it straight back in. So what I have is I've got the audio coming out of my computer via the microphone, and I've got the audio being fed back straight from the microphone. And I sort of try and balance the levels. And then I just try and, and repeat it exactly as is. And, and uh, it works pretty well. I've been doing that for like a couple of weeks now. And uh, I feel like I'm sort of making some progress. Interestingly, I am discovering things that I, that I physically can't do, which sort of surprised me a little bit. But there were some... Some parts of this particular uh, recording that I'm actually follow up from last week, the recording that I'm shadowing from is an episode of a, a KBS uh, Kyoto Broadcasting uh, radio show, which I can't remember the name, but I'll put a link in the show notes. That was a couple of weeks ago. It came out just after our last episode came out. And they talked specifically about the uh, T influenza thing 
the idea that that tea is supposed to be good for preventing the flu. Right. They were actually saying that it was uh it stopped you spreading it more than it stopped you getting it. Like it was a preventative thing to stop you giving it to other people. So they said Right, well. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope they touched on the fact that what was it that you have that wearing a mask is like minus thirty four. No, they didn't. I think it was from a different research group than than uh, your one because they oh, okay. they mentioned that wearing the mask is obviously a good thing to do as well. Well, but anyway, <laughs> I, I know your biases when that's concerned. Um, <laughs> so so anyway, so I was I, I've sort of been following that, and there's some things that he says that I'm perfectly capable of saying, right? Mm. But if I try and say them at the speed that he says them, I like I physically can't do it. My mouth gets caught up and I can't move from like the mm. the ku to the ta to the te like as quickly as he can. Mm. Um and so that's quite interesting. I think by doing this exercise and trying to work up to his speed, mm. it's not just a question of like getting used to the pitch accent and understanding, you know, right. how the vowels are formed and stuff, but it's actual physical exercise where the actual muscles in my mouth you know right need uh-huh. need practice to be able to to make that sound yeah. at all so yeah yeah it's it's much much more effort than i thought anyway yeah uh before uh i respond about the the um noise cancelling headphones i remember that when i used to be an english teacher i would find consistently that uh japanese speakers with with lisps mm. i was gonna say with lisps but with lisps, um, <laughs> uh, and it does exist. It does exist in Japan as well that mm-hmm. some people will speak with a, with a lisp. Um, but those people generally had uh, much better ability to speak natural sounding English pronunciation. Oh, really? And it would often be because when they're speaking English, they would speak with a lisp as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe I guess you can't probably really help with the natural. th sound a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was you can't really maybe say that it's uh, that it's natural English pronunciation if you're speaking with a lisp, but right. certainly very uh, very convincing. Mm. And so the actual physical, the, I think we often forget that there's understanding a language, there's knowing vocabulary, and there's being able to listen to it and parse it in your mind quick enough to respond in a conversation. Mm. But there is also the physical element, the physical element of moving your mouth that fast mm. in different kind of configurations and also um the tone of your voice is important too right know, to sound right. natural yeah apparently japanese tends to in in english we tend to speak in quite a resonant way mm. with the uh with a, a lot of resonance happening in our chest but in japanese the resonance tends to happen in the in the sort of throat and the nasal area yeah and that's the same with a lot of the southeast asian languages are mm. very um uh use more nasally you know it sounds very nasal like vietnamese and thai and uh, right. indonesian can right. sound very nasal compared to uh european languages yeah. but um what kind of noise cancelling headphones did you get so i got the uh the bose quiet comfort 35 2 Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> just rolls right off the tongue. Been practicing saying that, haven't you? <laughs> they're they're the the best fanciest ones. The ones that are actually the highest recommended by a lot of people, like the wire cutter and that, are the Sony ones. Right. The Sony ones apparently have better audio quality, but the noise cancellation isn't quite as good. And these Bose ones have got like much harsher, much stronger noise cancellation. The audio quality isn't quite as good as the Sony ones, but since I was getting these mostly to cut out noise, and I already have a pair of headphones that I use to listen to music, uh, I figured that you know the audio quality wasn't as important. 
Hmm. So I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. But they're good. They're, it was funny, though, because when I first got them, I got them out of the box and everything. They've got this kind of weird... They're Bluetooth, right? Mm. They've got a cable as well, which I use for the shadowing to, to avoid lag again. But they've, you know, they mainly use Bluetooth. And in order to set them up, you've got to, like, install this Bose Connect app and and faff about with it a bit. I don't, I don't really know why they need to have an app, but anyway... Um, so I was setting it all up and I unpackaged them and I sort of turned them on and installed the app and, and connected them and stuff. And I put them on and I've never used noise cancelling headphones, so I didn't really know what to expect. Have you used them before? Yes, I have. Um, but keep going because I, I have, I have uh, opinions. Okay. <laughs> have you used them, Chris? Never. I, it's the first time for me as well. So I put them on and everything was a bit quieter, but, you know, it wasn't like all it wasn't like complete silence you know my wife was talking and i could still hear her talking and 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 stuff like that uh so i thought oh well okay maybe this is what it's like maybe i haven't turned them on yet whatever so i was fiddling about and there's a button on the headphones to switch between no noise cancellation low noise cancellation and high noise cancellation Mm. Uh, so i was sort of fiddling about with that button and I was like, are these, I couldn't quite tell. I was like, are these working? My wife's voice sounds quieter, but that might just be because I've got these great big cans over my head. It might not mm. be anything to do with noise cancellation. And then I pressed the button to, you know, which turned the noise cancellation off. And I could hear this sort of roaring. And I was like, what's going on here? Like, is there something, is it doing sort of the reverse? Like, is it, <laughs> it just sort of playing normally when the noise cancellation is on? And it's giving me like the, the anti-signal when it's off and i you know have i messed up the the setup somehow so i was sort of playing about with the app and trying to figure it out but every time i turned it on to noise cancellation mode it just everything sounded normal mm-hmm. and every time i turned the noise cancellation off i could hear this sort of like wind like this <laughs> sound i was like that's so weird so i took the headphones off to tell my wife that, you know to, what what was happening and I could still hear the sound. <laughs> and it turned out that while I'd been fiddling with them with noise cancellation mode on, the air conditioner had come on and our air conditioner is super loud. And I hadn't known because the noise cancellation was on and it had completely cut out the sound. <laughs> I thought for a moment there that it was going to be like some some uh, trick that Bose does to, to make you think that they're effective. That All right. <laughs> when they're off. It, uh, sorry, when it's, yeah, when it's off, it makes this huge amount of noise to make you think that, it's, yeah. that, it, that it needs to be on. Yeah, yeah I, uh, uh, I tend to not really like noise-canceling headphones because my problem is that I can hear the out-of-phase signal. Mm. So the way that noise cancelling headphones work is it's pretty amazing technology, really. But it's basically taking an input from the environmental ambient sound mm. and uh, playing that back out of phase, mixed in with the signal from the headphones. Right. So it it, it won't be perfect because there's going to be a tiny amount of latency there between the input of the signal and the output reverse phase signal coming through uh, the output of the speakers. Um, so it's not ever going to be completely perfect, but it mm-hmm. does work. I mean, it does things do sound more quiet. And the one location where I find them very, very good is on an airplane. Right. A lot of people use them for that. Yeah. And it's so noisy anyway on an airplane that, uh, you know, playing back basically the the anti, the, the out of phase version of all that noise, mm. you know, you're not really going to notice too much anything mm. unusual because it's, it's a noisy environment. However, 
in in all other environments, I find that I sense the out of phase signal as this very very low frequency pressure on mm-hmm. my ears, mm. and I actually, for that reason, I find them quite uncomfortable. Yeah, you're not alone. Actually, quite a lot of people. I was reading, you know, I was reading up on them before I bought them as well, and quite a lot of people. And it seems to be a very sort of individual thing. I suppose it's a bit like feeling sick with VR glasses, like. Mm. different people that affects different people to different extents Mm. some people feel exactly that pressure that you described some people describe it as feeling like you want to yawn but not being able to oh interesting yeah Yeah, that sounds familiar at all and having never used them i didn't know if i was going to be one of these people so you know it was a little bit of a worry i I definitely checked the return policy before i bought them Mm. but i'm glad to say i'm lucky enough to be uh, not in that group. I don't really experience a sense of pressure or this mm. this feeling of yawning. The one thing I do experience is that if I wear them for too long, if I'm using them in noise cancellation mode for too long, after I take them off, I have this sensation in my ears as if I've been listening to really loud music for that whole time. Uh. And you know how sometimes if you listen to loud music and then you take the headphones off or whatever, you can hear, it's not quite a ringing in your ears, but you can right. feel this sort of kind of uneasy yeah. feeling. I mean, of course, that's what I've been doing, right? Like I, I have been playing, it sounds like silence, but I've actually been playing this l- s- signal into my ears this whole time. Right. That's what I was going to say that, I mean, where you actually have been listening to loud music, although it's just, you know, the reverse of your ambient noise. But, right, right. Yeah. So that is an interesting thing. You do have to be careful with it, I think. If you were to put them on for too long, like to, especially in a situation where the surroundings are quite loud, so that presumably mm. is going to mean that the anti-phase signal that they feed you is also quite loud. Mm. Um, right. exactly. I think, you, you know, it's, it's probably not good for your ears. So you do have to be careful with them. How, um, how are you with VR, Danny? With VR, I am not too bad, but not too great either like Mm. i would come through i know that you all you know you're working on a a vr project while i was working on a a different project when we used to work together and so i would come through occasionally and play your game for for short snippets at a time but i wasn't using it every day Mm. and i think that you all probably got kind of inured to the effect a little bit and became Mm a little bit immune to it or more so than you were to begin with over over the course of time which probably didn't happen to me to the same extent because i wasn't getting as much exposure to to it so Mm. i would find that i could play for like 10 or 15 minutes pretty comfortably but if it got much longer Mm. than that then i started to get like a little bit uncomfortable and to to feel like i maybe maybe it was time for a break Mm. Yeah, actually, for those who don't know, actually, Chris and I work together specifically on VR projects. So we, we're doing the VR thing every day, more or less, that we're working. I'm very excited about your new game, by the way. I've been seeing pictures on Twitter. Oh, yes. It's it's glorious. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But Chris, do you... We've obviously talked about this for work many times, but mm-hmm. to what extent do you think that the discomfort that people feel with uh vr to what extent do you think we're capable of alleviating that with good good design for vr applications oh it's funny you should say that alex <laughs> <laughs> it's almost as if i'm giving a talk on this exact subject in two weeks time oh yes you are actually <laughs> where, where is um, that i've that's at uh 
Scotland, I can't remember the name of the, the group, Scotland VR, MR, AR, XR, oh, Meetup. That also rolls off the tongue. Right. <laughs> Probably on, on meetup.com or Eventbrite or something like that. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think, I, I came to a conclusion as I've been thinking about this talk, and I, I think there's, the, the basic problem is that if you force the player's head to move through moving the ca camera in-game, you get a kind of inverse motion sickness, mm -hmm. inverse car sickness or travel sickness, because in a car you're sitting still but you're moving and your brain gets confused, right. and in VR you're sitting still but the world's moving and your brain gets confused. Right. Or if you force the head to move relative to the way it's actually moving, right? It, yes. It, the, yes. The inverse of that is if you force the head not to move when it is moving in real life, for example. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that that upsets people. Upsets people's I don't I don't know what the medical terms mm -hmm. are, but it upsets the way that you feel and then you feel sick and then you rip the thing off your head and you say I hate VR it's right. rubbish. Right. Uh, how to what extent are we able to compensate for that with okay design. yeah so there's a lot there's lots and lots of different ways that people try to get around this they like put borders on the screen to hide the fact and and they do things like we're assuming you're in a game where the camera's moving mm -hmm. because you're in a car and the car is moving or you're playing like a half-life style game and it's you're moving the player character but you're not actually moving in real life mm -hmm. so there's there's things people do like they'll snap snap turns so that the movement's a bit more juddery so you don't feel the smooth movement mm -hmm. you can like accelerate at different speeds or not accelerate or go at full speed and these things all kind of can can help but the conclusion i came to the other day was that these things are all kind of breaking the contract with the player of what vr is right and the vr the vr is like a direct manipulation a direct representation of your movements and mm. in, in the game world of what's happening in the real world and by moving the camera to sort of represent something more than that, you're taking that agency away from the player mm. and they can't do what they want to do. Mm. So this is not really the answer to the question, but I've decided now that that's not VR because you're you're kind of taking something about VR and just saying, just ignore that, it doesn't matter. Right, interesting. So like, it's, it's still virtual reality because you're in a virtual reality, but it's it's not working with the system. Mm. Right, and I think that's that's the problem, and I think you can do interesting things, and lots of people have done really unique movement systems, and they work to some degree, mm -hmm. and things feel different. And there's ones where you, if you're moving your arms to make yourself move, mm -hmm. then it feels less bad. Right, it feels as if you're moving, sort of thing, as if you're walking. Kind, kind of a yeah, it, it more feels like you're moving the world. So you could right. grab the world and then pull it towards you, like you're climbing up something. Oh, I see. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. In, in VR, it feels super weird because you can see the world moving as you move your arms. I'm mm -hmm. waving my arms here, but you can't see that. Right. But it doesn't feel like you're moving as a person. It feels like you're pulling the world around you. You're moving the world around. Which actually, funny enough, is how most graphics engines have been written since the dawn of 3D. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty coincidental, sort of, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think there's definitely things you can do if you really, really want to do these things. But fun, fundamentally, you're 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 breaking this this match between what's happening in real life and what's not happening mm. or what's happening in the game. Mm. And that maybe is impossible, not impossible. That's not the right, the right. Well, I don't actually know how to, how to say this. But there's a limit to the extent that, that we can sort of fake that. Yeah. Just, just because you're, there's like so much more going on when you move right. in the real world. Right. 
that you can never replicate and you can become immune to it right or you can become very immune to it and you can like take seasickness tablets or eat lots of ginger biscuits or whatever right um but there's still like you you know that's not happening right whereas in vr when you move your head and in, in the game your head moves you know that's happening and it it feels correct or when you move your hands and you see that that feels correct right. because it right. because it is do you think this this there's some aspect to which this problem with sickness might be a sort of temporary generational problem in in so far as, for example the the brain is very good at learning how new non-realistic things work there was a guy on youtube who rewired his bicycle so that when he turned left it turned right and when he turned mm. right it turned left i've seen that movie. and it took him like a long time to get used to this notion but once he got used to it his brain just shifted into this mode where it was just completely normal and subconsciously yeah. he just knew how to deal with it there's another experiment yeah. where a guy sort of made a contraption like a pair of glasses or something yes which flipped the world so everything was upside down yeah and again he felt like weird i think he may have also felt nausea at first i'm not sure yeah but again after a couple of weeks of just wearing them all the time he got completely used to it so if people are willing to sort of break through that barrier, do you think it's something that we as a as a species can adapt to? Or do you think we still need to be adapting the technology to meet the species more? I, I think it's it's possible. It, it clearly is possible because lots of people already do that. I can last a lot longer in VR now than I ever could before. Right. It's maybe not that marketable though, as a <laughs> Yeah. Like yeah. if you if you market it as if you play our game for a hundred hours, then you can not be play sick. it without feeling sick. <laughs> mm. But there's like there's lots of people on on the forums on the internet right. who basically have that opinion. Right. They're right. like this this game where you haven't added a smooth movement. Right. And you can only teleport and jump around. I want smooth movement because I don't get sick. Right. And right. everyone else should not get sick as well. Right. So that I can have this feature. Right. Mm. I mean, it's kind of like, for me, VR as a an art form and a medium, there's sort of a, to me, there's sort of like a, I don't know, there's a, there's a sadness to the, to the way that it's, it's been developed and the way that it's progressed to this point. Um, there's, a, there's a disappointing aspect. And it, I feel that it's a little bit like, you know, if we had a pair of shoes that were marketed as being specifically uncomfortable, <laughs> but if you wear them enough you'll get used to them. Mm. You know, you'd think, well, why would I bother buying a pair of shoes that's going to tell me that they're uncomfortable right. when I could just not wear uncomfortable shoes and wear comfortable shoes instead? Right. And if you have a group of people that say, no, but, you know, I'm used to it now, so I want more of these shoes that are specifically uncomfortable because I'm used to them. It's like, well, that's great, but, you know, I mean, again, if it's uncomfortable to begin with, like, why... What is even the point in convincing somebody no? I mean, I suppose it's possible that there may be a way to ramp up to that, right? That you might have more approachable games and experiences that that don't make most people feel sick, but right. are limited in some ways. Yeah. But then after people have played those for a while, they can move on to the sort of fully free exactly. shooters and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with, with VR, the, the, the sort of sad, disappointing aspect of the way that it's progressed to this point for me is just that I think that the quality of design in vr for vr interaction and this the understanding of this new medium mm. has has sort of raced ahead a little bit too quickly without proper sort of thought for well you know well wait a moment what if this is a medium that needs to be approached differently 
and that we can't do all the things that we are used to doing and that we want to do in regular you know, 3D games that you play on a 2D screen, mm-hmm. we can't and we shouldn't because it's a different medium and it requires right. a different set of design considerations. But because, you know, a lot of the um, the VR applications that we've seen over the past few years have been racing to try and achieve different things beyond an understanding of this being a different medium, mm-hmm. it means that a lot of people try VR and it makes them feel very uncomfortable. Right. And then they think, well, no, this this VR thing is not for me, or right. I'm not used to it, so I'm not interested. Right. And, you know, I don't have the the patience or the enthusiasm to kind of push through the, you know, the, the barrier of discomfort and get used to it. Yeah. Because uh, to me, it doesn't feel that worth. It's not appealing enough to be, to sort of be worthwhile struggling through the discomfort just to get used to it. I mean, there is quite a lot of research going on as well into how to deal with all these issues and not just from a a technology point of view but also from a game design point of view and all the things chris says about identifying what it is that that causes that feeling and what doesn't how we can work around it you know a lot of people have done the thing where you can teleport from place to place to avoid smoothly moving but then there's sort of another school that's saying well that's kind of disruptive and jarring uh, from a, a gameplay design point of view, you know. Mm. So, I think the, the the most important thing is just to for developers to understand that nothing is really proven yet. Mm. You know that nothing uh, nothing is really proven as being the way to do it. Right. But I think what is most important is a, is a strong recognition and an acknowledgement of the fact that it's really different. Right. And right, it needs right. to be approached like right. designing a VR experience. You can't do it. As you would normally do it if you were designing a game in 3D that right. you would play on a flat screen. That's part of what makes it exciting as well, right? Is a, a whole new sort of. That's right, for sure. And, and I think that we're all basically sort of feeling around in the dark to a certain extent, but right. it's it's a little disappointing that many consumers who you know go to their friend's place and this friend is a gamer and he's got his his Oculus Rift or HTC Vive or whatever there with this right. powerful computer. Oh, you want to try a VR game and give them something that's kind of, you know, a game that has been, well, I mean, I guess we can say poorly designed. Or not designed for that, maybe. I mean, you know, because the first thing that happened when we all got the first Oculus dev kit thing was everyone played Half-Life on it, which was not made for VR in in any sense, right? It was made for a 2D screen. Right. Yeah, and I think um, it's just disappointing that those first timers who are trying it for the first time think, "Whoa, uh, I, I, you know, a few minutes into this, okay, I've had enough of this. I need to take it off and go lie down on the floor with one eye closed for a right. while." Yeah. And and then that therefore solidifies in their minds, "No, VR is not for me. It's only for people who are used to it, or people who are hardcore enough to right. desire that experience right. and push through the discomfort." And that's that's the shame i think that yeah. uh, well you're doing good work trying to yeah. trying to solve that issue so yeah well, in- interestingly i think it's interesting to me my first experience of vr ever kind of was the opposite because it was it was like at a trade show somewhere mm. and there was a roller coaster demo mm. and i put it on i was standing and now now that i understand what's going on because the camera was moving mm. and i was not moving like i felt weird and i felt sick because right, right. this roller coaster was going up and down right and all over the place but because i didn't realize any of this i took that as holy moly this is just like being on a roller coaster <laughs> <laughs> and and i was like wow vr is incredible like i'm just standing here 
put this thing on my head. I almost fell over because like the ground was moving under me. Right. That's that's insane. VR is amazing. Right, right. And looking back, I'm like, okay, well, all those things happened because this game should not be in VR. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we've we've had a we've been quite privileged that you know um, we've worked together on uh, VR stuff from very early in this new renaissance for VR mm. technology since mm. uh, 2012 and 2013, and um, you know we've we've kind of learned the hard way. That th- this is a very different medium that needs to approach be approached differently, right. because you know we there were no guidelines back then. You know, it's just kind of like uh, right. you know, yeah, that'll be cool. But I remember that it's interesting when one of the things that we on the very first project that we did together. Well, I can remember myself saying in creative meetings that we would have about how to design our game mm. was that we need to be putting things into this to make it feel worthwhile that you're doing it in VR. Mm. Like, why would you do this in VR if you could do it on a flat screen right. and, and be more comfortable? So we need to have things in this that make it feel like it's worthwhile mm. having this thing on your head. And in, interestingly, a lot of the things that we would try to do, for example, having a lot of the action happening in 360 degrees around the player. Mm-hmm. However, in that specific game, uh, you're in a moving vehicle. Mm. So, you know, I can remember actually suggesting one day that, well, if you're in a moving vehicle, then we should have lots of action happening behind you, even if you're moving forward, mm. so that you encourage the player to look around. Mm. Because otherwise, if you're just going to sit there with this thing on your head mm. and only looking forward, mm. then why not just do it on a flat screen? Right. So we should have a, give a reason for the player to be looking behind them. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, we know now that that is something that's very, very risky to do in VR because... Right. Right. If you're moving one direction but looking backwards in the other direction, yeah. for people who are sensitive to it, that's a, a, an easy, easy trigger to make them right. feel nauseous. Right. Uh, we learn, we know that now, of course. But, uh, yeah, you asked earlier about our uh, current project. So a project that we're working on at the moment, sort of on and off when we can, is uh, a new game called Poly Blaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a, a fun project for us because... It started off with the thought that uh, we had one day in a conversation that it's interesting that developers often see VR as being like Star Trek holodeck, where the the reality around you is ultra realistic, right, and ultra right. immersive, and you know indistinguishable from the real thing. But it's virtual, and therefore anything can happen, and you can have it be whichever way you want, right? Just like you know the holodeck in in Star Trek. Whereas people who are sort of not so savvy with games or or VR in general often tend to see VR as being more like Tron or uh, sort of clearly artificial. So not realistic, but actually totally artificial and totally sort of um, computer generated, something that looks clearly like you're inside a computer world. Right. And, an, a, you know, a great example of that are, all of uh, like the early three three D games, vector games like Battlezone, and even to a certain extent uh, games like Tempest, which are sort of like clearly cyber isn't the right word. I guess but it's like you know inside a computer, like Tron, right. basically. You right, know? right. And so Polyblaster uh, looks like a game that came from the early eighties. Mm. So it's all done with sort of um, the look is sort of like uh, there's early 80s arcade vector graphics right and um it's very very basically our our aim with it is to make it look like 
what you would sort of expect VR to look like if you had no idea about what it was right. and what it's ac- actually capable of. Right, right. So rather than immersion through realism, we're sort of going for immersion through imagination, mm. I suppose. Cool. Yeah, I've seen the the sort of screenshots and and the, the little video you put with the pew pew pew. <laughs> yeah. yeah so if you if you're interested in uh getting news about polyblaster then the twitter handle to follow is good times underscore okay <laughs> i'll put a link in the show notes thank you 